Uh, we are going to be continuing in Titus 2. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Titus 2, starting in verse 1. It says this, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the young, younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to, uh, to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Sunday mornings. We thank you for the reminder that we are sinners saved by grace. Uh, the, week, um, the week is troublesome and difficult, and uh, we, forget, we forget our way. So we are thankful for Sunday mornings to remind us of who we are in you. And we thank you for your grace and your kindness. Um, and I'm especially grateful for that in my own life. A reminder this morning that um, your great grace uh, has been poured out in my life. Lord, I pray for everyone who's listening this morning that you would open their hearts to hear from you, that your Holy Spirit would convict of sin and righteousness. Lord, that truth would be spoken. Lord, if I say anything that is false or wrong, that your Holy Spirit and your grace would cover that. And so we ask for your guidance this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, we are at uh, the final, the home stretch of this sermon series. Uh, we are going to finish up Titus 2, verses 1 through 10. If you remember back from the, the first sermon a few weeks ago, we started with sound doctrine and, and elders and their responsibility to protect sound doctrine and to protect against false teachers. And then we looked at old men and how uh, we are to relate to one another within the context of the church and how we apply sound doctrine uh, within relationship. And old men were to set the example. And that was followed by old women who were to set an example and then also urge the young women uh, to behave in a godly way, to teach the young women how to apply sound doctrine to their lives specifically. Today we're going to look at young men. Now they don't get off the hook. Matter of fact, they're going to get most of a sermon to themselves. And so the young men are going to learn to be self-controlled. And then we have two other subjects to cover. Uh, Titus has, there's some instruction to Titus as well, and church leaders, I think, more generally. And then finally, we are going to finish up with employees and a boss-employee relationship. So all of this is based around sound doctrine, that is, doctrine that agrees with what Jesus taught, that is found in Scripture, that is explained by the apostles, and is centered around the gospel message, that is, Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and his second coming. So we're going to look here at verse 6. We're in Titus 2. We're going to take another look at verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. There are three things we need to deal with before we can get to self-control. 
The first thing is likewise. Likewise. He says uh, in verse 5 to the young women uh, that if they do not behave in this certain godly way, that the word of God uh, may be reviled. And so likewise, young men, you're going to get some instruction. And if you don't behave in this way, you're likely to have the word of God reviled because of your behavior. And so uh, pay close attention to this, young men. We talked to the old men already. We talked to the old women. We talked to the young women. And now we're here talking to the young men. And this is a very important uh, message to the young men. And so he says to him, urge. Urge. Who is to urge? Urge. That is Titus. Titus, you are. There's an implied you in this, uh, in this verb. You, Titus, are to urge the young men. So last week, we were uh, told that the older women were to urge the younger women. There were reasons for that, that Titus, that was not his job to urge the young women uh, because the requirement is a close, personal, intimate relationship with those young women, and it would be inappropriate and difficult for Titus, a young man, to do that. And so he tasks the older women with that job. But we're back to instruction for Titus to urge the younger men. Now, uh, there is... Uh, something special about this word urge it is a stronger word than what is used in verse 1 if you flip back to or uh, for me it's flip you're probably on the same page Titus 2 1 it says but as for you teach what accords with sound doctrine that word teach we talked about being uh, that you are to talk with that you are as you relate to them in life as you walk through life with them you're to have conversations with them about how sound doctrine applies to their specific situation and so talk with the old men talk with the old women but then he gets to the young men and he says no do more than that it has the same root in in this conversational but there's something extra there's a compound word that puts a little extra emphasis on this talking the idea is to beseech or exhort there's something powerful about this word that you are to powerfully and passionately explain to them this next thing he says don't don't mince words you know, don't, don't try and curb it so that it's not so harsh. He says, no, urge them passionately. This is important. Why? Likewise, so what the, uh, the word of God may not be reviled. There's a lot on the line. There's a lot at stake here. Young men, if your behavior is not appropriate, the word of God is to be reviled. And so Titus, don't, don't let up. Don't pull back. Speak to him clearly. This is very important, he says. And so, young men, listen up. Listen up, young men. Titus may have been uh, bashful or timid. He may have been tempted in that way as he's speak, speaking to his peers. Right? Titus was likely to be in this young man category. And so he's speaking to his peers here and has to give them this command and so he may have been tempted to put, kind of pull back or what are they going to think of me or do I have a place in their life to say these things and he says no don't pull back speak boldly to them speak passionately to them make it clear to them okay so the third thing we want to understand is who are the who is the audience the younger men what does it mean to be a younger man in our second sermon I spent quite a long time talking about the difference between old and young and I made a clear distinction because I think Paul is trying to categorize people so that you understand what your role is in the church and that everybody has an important role to play and the older men uh, we looked at what that meant and we, we determined that it was somewhere in your 
50s or 60s, you start to become an older man. And that is somebody who has finished uh, raising children. They're starting to transition out of raising children. Perhaps you're starting to have grandchildren. You're, you're, uh, you're maybe you've started to retire from your vocation. Um, and that leaves you opportunities for many other things. Perhaps your body is starting to fail a little bit uh, and you have grown uh, stronger in wisdom as you lose your physical strength that you've lived every season of life. So conversely, then, the younger men are those who are starting to raise children, who are still perhaps in school, uh, who don't really have it all figured out. They haven't experienced every kind of season of life yet. That is a younger man. Perhaps you are a teenager or in your, uh, your early 20s or 30s, even all the way up to 40. That's what it means to be a younger man. And the Bible has actually quite a lot to say to this group of individuals. Uh, most of Proverbs was written directly to a son, a young man. This is how you are to live. And so you look through Proverbs, and while it does apply to everybody in the church, the target audience of that book was younger men. And there's lots and lots that the Bible has to say. But what's interesting in our verse today is he doesn't have a lot to say to the younger men. And I think that's very intentional. Because he says, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. One thing. Talk to the old men, here's a few things you need to do. Old women, here's a few things. Young women, here's a lot. Here's all these things that you need to do. Young men, I know you can't handle that. That's too much. I don't want to overwhelm you. I'm going to give you just this one thing. Just focus, okay? If you can just look and just look at this one thing in your life, you'll be okay. Young women, you can handle a lot more. You're multitasking. You can figure it out. That's good. Young men, don't overwhelm you. Don't want to burden you too much. One thing, okay? One track mind, he gets men. So he says, one track mind. I, uh, I was on the golf team in high school. I had a coach. Uh, I never got any good, but I remember the coach, would uh, he would only work on one thing at a time. You know, there's lots of things to work on in a golf swing. You got the face of it open or closed, your backswing, your, your follow through, all of that. There's so many things you can, the whole body is in play, but he only ever worked on one thing at a time because he knew that we young men could not handle more than that. And so he'd say, okay, just work on your backswing. That's all you have for today. And so Titus gives, is given the instruction, tell the young men, work on this one thing. Now, the fact that he only gives you one thing means that it must be very important. Furthermore, this one thing is the only thing that is repeated for all of the different categories of people, whether it's elders, old men, young, young women, old women, all of them have gotten this one thing. And so there's something central to godly living about this one characteristic. And so it must be important. Self-control. Be self-controlled. So self-control, this word, uh, there's actually a number of Greek words that have the content that are translated self-controlled. The one that is used here in this verse has the context more of uh, intellectual self-control, being sober-minded, being, uh, being thoughtful in your, in your mind. It has less to do so with your actions. There are other words uh, that have to do with what you do, not so much what you think, but here he starts with this is what you are to do or what you are to think, to have sound judgment. Now, why would he start there? Why would he say, control your thinking? Now, let's uh, turn over to 
James chapter 1 for our answer. James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 say this. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So what is the progression? What is the logical progression? First, sin starts in our mind. A sinful thought enters into our mind, either through our own sinful flesh, from the enemy, or from another person. Whatever the case, the sinful thought enters our mind. At that point, we can take that thought and dwell on it, soak on it, think on it. And as we do that, it starts to manifest itself in our actions. And our, so we go from a sinful thought to dwelling on it, owning it, and then we act on it. So it becomes sin. And that sin, according to James 1, leads to death. The end result of our sin is death. That's why sin is so terrible. Because it always leads to death. Death in relationship, death in our spirit, finally death in our bodies. Now, I, I have the privilege of having lots of conversations with either young believers uh, or uh, people who are questioning what is the gospel, how do they understand God, and they have, they're not a believer yet, but they're wrestling with this. Maybe they grew up in the church. And I ask them this question. I say, why is sin so bad? And I usually get a blank stare for a few minutes, and then they say, well, because God doesn't like it. Okay, yeah, but, but why doesn't God like sin? Why, why is he so opposed to sin? Well, it's disobeying him. Yeah, okay, so why is that so bad? I don't know. It's bad because it brings death. Sin brings death. That's why it's bad. God is the author of life. Sin is disobeying God, rebelling against God, and the result of it is death, and God hates death. Sin is bad because it brings death. We, um, yeah, we, we think that sin feels good. There are certain, we're all different, we all have different temptations, but there are certain sins that we think of as being pleasurable, as being good. And we consider the consequences and we say, ah, you know what, this one's worth it because it's going to feel so good. That is the lie of the enemy. Sin does not feel good. The only reason that sin might feel good to us is because we are so corrupt and so depraved that sin feels good to us. More on that later. Young men, you are to be self-controlled. Do this one thing, and you will win most of the battle against sin. What is it that makes sin, what is it that makes us think that sin is good? Ultimately, it's pride. Pride says, I am in control, and God is not. It's the original sin in the garden. Fortunately, God knows how to humble the proud. And he does it in a sort of an ironic way. The person who says that they are in control, God says, okay, why don't you go ahead and try that out? You be in control. And the person who thinks that they are in 
control of their lives. Then God gives them over to that. And what we find, if you were to read through Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, is that the person starts to suppress the truth in their mind. And they don't think clearly anymore. And their thinking becomes futile. And eventually, that thinking leads them into sin. And they become like the beasts. And they start acting in debased and wretched ways. Their corrupt thinking leads them into all kinds of sin. So in taking control of their lives, they lose control. And they become like the beasts who don't have self-control. They act impulsively. They act in ways that are uh, instinctual, if you might say. That's the difference between a human and an animal. Is anim animals don't have this sense of self-control, that I have a desire to do this thing, but no, I'm not going to hold back on that desire and do what God wants me to do. Animals do not think in this way, but humans are to think in this way. It is a spiritual gift. And we know that as a fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5.23, it is the final fruit of the Spirit that sometimes gets forgotten. That it, it is a spiritual thing to be self-controlled. And apart from the Spirit, it's not possible. You become like the beasts. We are spiritual beings, and unless our spirit is dead, we have self-control. But if we're in our sin, our spirit is dead, holy no Christ, and we don't have self-control, and we act instinctively. So if you want to gain control over your mind and your body, what do you do? You forsake the lustful desires of the flesh, and you walk by the Spirit. So how do you walk by the Spirit? What does that mean? It means that you humble yourself, you give control back to your Creator, as if He ever left it, as if He ever lost it. You get me? But we give control back over to our Creator. And in the miracle and mystery of God, He gives us the spiritual ability to master our minds and our bodies and to gain self-control. So you're saying, in order to have control, you have to give up control. Yes. It's a spiritual mystery. The more we abide in Christ and become like Him, the more we become our true selves and gain our true identity and gain self-control. This is the mystery of Christ. The more we walk and obey him, walk with Him and obey Him, the more control we have over our mind and our bodies. It isn't as though God does his part and then I do my part. We each have our equal share. No, read John 14 through 16, chapters 14 through 16, and you will find that there is an intimate oneness for believers and God, that we are walking together step by step, hand in hand, and it isn't God doing and I'm doing, it's we're doing, that God works and we work. It's a miraculous oneness with Christ when you're a believer. So, when we walk in the Spirit, we obey God, we think and act righteously, and God gets the credit and the glory. When we walk contrary to God, disobey Him, we get the blame and the shame. So no matter what, either way, we both get what we deserve. Now, this doctrine strikes a death blow to our pride. We would love to take some credit for our goodness, that we chose to do the right thing, 
And we would love to be able to accuse and blame God for our failures. Well, it's God's fault that I did that, or he should have kept me from doing that. But God knows how to humble the proud, how to exalt the lowly, and it's through his own power working in us that he gets the glory and everybody gets what they deserve. But practically, how do we overcome pride and walk by the Spirit? If you would turn with me to Romans chapter 12. For some of you, this may be a very familiar verse. Uh, some of you, this may be new, and I would encourage you to spend some time meditating on these verses. How do we overcome pride and walk by the Spirit? Give me something to do, Daniel. I need help here. Well, Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Okay, that's what I want to do. Good. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, that is to be humble, but to think, but to think with sober judgment, and each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So how do we walk by the Spirit? We humble ourselves and renew our mind on the Word of God and on truth. We think clearly and sober-mindedly about sin. What is, it that, what is the truth about sin? Sin is deadly and bad. Sin's great deception is that it's pleasurable. It's a lie. No amount of sin is pleasurable. You say, well, that's not true. I sinned the other day, and it felt quite good. The only reason it felt good is because we are so depraved that we think sin feels good. Do you think that Jesus would have felt good doing what you did or thinking what you thought? No, it would have been re repulsive to him. It would have irritated his very being. The only reason we think sin feels good is because so, we are so depraved. And so how do we fight sin? We fight sin with the truth that this, in fact, does not feel good. This thing that I'm feeling that I think feels good is actually wickedness. This is disgusting. This is vile. That's the truth of the matter. When we renew our mind on the truth, it leads to godly living. The Holy Spirit in His amazing grace doesn't give us all of our sin at once, does he? He doesn't just come to us and unfold, here's all of your sin for the whole world to see. No, in his grace, he slowly peels back the layers of our sin, which is so deep, right? Like the onion. He's peeling off our sin and saying, hey, by the way, this is sinful too. Oh, man, okay. And we repent, ask for forgiveness, and we continue moving forward. And in time, as we walk through the, our life, God sanctifies us and continues to reveal more sin to us. That is the course of our life. He doesn't just all of a sudden say, here's all of your sin. We couldn't handle it. I couldn't handle it. If God told me right now all of the ways that my heart is sinful and all of the ways that I have sinned, I would be overwhelmed and destroyed. And so he, in his grace and his mercy, trains us carefully, brings us along, sanctifying us. And we respond to that as believers by repenting and walking in faith. Something more to be said about self-control and I want to say this um, respectfully as I can 
2 Timothy 1.7 says that God gave us a spirit of self-control. And um, my brothers and sisters uh, who are part of the charismatic and Pentecostal movement, I believe, have gotten this wrong. That uh, to be slain in the spirit, they say, is something from God. Or to involuntarily speak spiritual language, that that is from God. No, it's not. When we are with God, we gain more self-control, not less. So when we lose control, most often it is something sinful or demonic. It is not something righteous from God. I would say there's one exception to this, and that would be the fear of God. When we see someone come to the presence of God, they fall down involuntarily and worship God. Absolutely, that is true. But all of the other examples in Scripture of someone losing control, it's because of either demonic possession or sin in their life. Look at Luke 8.35. Jesus has just healed uh, a, a, de- a demon-possessed man and, uh, and cast them out. And we pick up in uh, Luke 8.35, and it says this. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone and sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. When Jesus interacts with your life, when he intervenes in your life, you gain self-control, you don't lose it. When you've been freed by Christ, you gain self-control, you gain a sober mind. You can think of more examples if you were want to, to, wanted to. Think of Nebuchadnezzar. God's punishment for his pride was to, to lose his mind and to behave like a beast. When Saul became jealous of David and sought to kill him, he'd lose his mind. The demon-possessed people were out of control. All of them in a sinful or demonic state. But walking in the Spirit, obeying God gives you more control of your mind and your body, not less. And young men, we struggle with this, don't we? We struggle with this a lot. Our passions and desires, they pull hard at us, but we're not to give in. Young men do this one thing, have self-control. Are you struggling with self-control? You're struggling having mastery over your thoughts and your desires? What is the answer? Draw near to God. Repent of your sin. Be trained by the grace of God. Renew your mind on the truths of God. Sin leads to death. It's not fulfilling. Don't believe the lie. It's not fulfilling. Train your mind. Obeying God is life-giving. Obeying God is fulfilling. Have self-control. Starts in your mind, plays itself out in your actions. We move on to uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 7, where we get instructions uh, to Titus about how he is to behave. Titus being the first elder uh, on Crete, Paul left him behind to uh, appoint more elders, raise up more, but he is the first. 
And he says this to him, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. What is the instruction to Titus? To present yourself as a pattern of good works. And I pray and I hope and I do believe that this is true of our elders here. That you can look at their lives and have a godly model of how you are to behave. That their teaching matches their life. Now, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about general characteristics. The general character of the elder's life is to point to God as it honors him. Now, elders make mistakes. We're not looking for perfection. And then when they do mess up, they need to repent. We need to repent. We need to uh, admit our wrong and ask for forgiveness. Um, I've seen this in the elders' lives. We are constantly asking for forgiveness uh, because we mess up. But that does make us hypocritical. So this is to be the general character of the elders in the church. And then there's a general truth here as well that pretty much any person in leadership in any position is going to be scrutinized as it pertains to what they lead. You think about a basketball player. They're going to be scrutinized for how well they play basketball. We think about uh, a nurse. A nurse is going to be scrutinized for how well they care for somebody. A policeman is going to be scrutinized for how well they uphold the law. Well, an elder is going to be scrutinized for how godly they live their lives. So it isn't limited to an elder for a particular part of their vocation, like when they're at the church, they're supposed to behave this way. No, in all of their life, they are to be godly. That's a heavy weight. Because whether it's at home or at work, in the community, in church, everywhere, they are to live godly lives and to be an example of good works. Why? Because people are watching. Everyone's watching. Not just people in the church, but it says here, opponents. Presumably here, unbelievers are looking at the church, looking at the leadership of the church and hoping, desiring that they would fail, that they would make a mistake and so they can condemn that person and thereby condemn God and the entire church. Paul says, don't give them a chance. Make sure that no accusation against you sticks. When somebody accuses you of hypocrisy, of false teaching, and they will, they will, don't let it be true. Let your character prove true. And this is really true, not just of elders, but anyone in leadership in the church. Anyone who leads or teaches in the church carries this. That's why Paul says it's uh, not good that many of you should be teachers because it is hard to stay above reproach. It is hard. It's hard to teach godliness and live it out every moment of every day and to be scrutinized moment by moment. That is a difficult task. So whether you're a teacher, leader, elder, the public is watching. So you're to stay above board so that when an accusation comes, it doesn't stick. And furthermore, when an accusation comes, that the opponent 
would be put to shame when the truth comes out. God is to be our defender. Now, the job of leadership is very difficult. So what is the application for those who are not in leadership? Be gracious to those who are in leadership. Think the best. Don't be critical like the opponents. There are opponents already. Don't join them. Don't be a part of them. It's easy to criticize. It's hard to lead. Think twice before you criticize someone who is trying to faithfully serve the Lord. Rather, be an encourager to them. Be an advocate for them. No, we won't always agree on how things are done, but be patient and sympathetic with your leaders. Don't join the ranks of the opponents, mocking, ridiculing, putting down, picking at. Don't be a part of the gossip behind them. Then remember to pray for your pastors and your leaders. They are under constant spiritual attack as well. It's draining, it's exhausting. I think I underestimated how difficult this would be being a pastor. I knew that I would have opponents, uh, human opponents. What I think I underestimated is exactly how heavy it would be, the spiritual attack, that the accuser and the tempter was relentless. So you pray for your elders. You pray for your leaders who are under constant spiritual attack. Pray that they wouldn't be like the false teachers who were desiring ill-gotten gain, that they were hypocritical in their teaching, teaching one thing and thinking nothing of doing the opposite. They became unfit for any good work. Pray that your elders and your leaders would not become unfit, that they would be fit for good works. So we lift up our leaders in prayer and we encourage them. Finally, we move on to bond servants. Verse 9, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, the context here of a bond servant is a little bit confusing. It's one Greek word. It's used in many different contexts. Uh, don't think 19th century American slavery. It's not that at all. Um, yes, there were slaves uh, of that nature. Uh, I don't think that's what's in view here. What's in view here is uh, someone who has sold themselves into slavery because of their own financial situation, whatever it may be. Uh, they have sold themselves to a master who then uh, it contractually, they work for them for seven, 14 years, maybe up to a lifetime, uh, depending on the contract, but they have, they have chosen to be a part of this uh, societal economic system. And in return, as they work, they are provided for uh, an income, uh, a place to stay, food, etc. Perhaps even some land. This is the context. Now, there are some there are some similarities to our uh, employee-employer uh, economic situation that we have here in America, but it's not a one-for-one. One. So don't hear that. Uh, for instance, we can quit our job and go find a new job. If you were a bond servant, you could not quit your job and go find a new job. There were severe penalties for that, legal penalties for that. So it's not one for one, but the application definitely matches. And I think what 
what Paul is trying to get at is, is this, that as we interact with uh, people outside of, the commu- outside of our church community, as we interact with people outside of our home, we're to behave in a certain way. And so if you are an employee and you have uh, an employer and you work with this person, this is how you are to behave. Uh, that is the, the applicational connection for us today. Now, the workplace uh, is really where unbelievers get a chance to know who we truly are. We can fake it as we you know, go to the farmer's market and we can smile and be cordial and all of those things. We can, we can do it uh, at a restaurant for an hour. We can kind of keep it together. But when we go into the context of work and we spend eight to ten hours every day, five days a week, for years, people get to know the real us, not the pretend us that we can put on a show for. They get to know the real us. How do you deal with stress? How do you deal with failures, hardship, etc.? Do you complain? Do you give up? Do you talk bad about others? Do you steal? Do you cheat? These sorts of things start to come out as you work for somebody for long enough. And the question Paul is asking is, are you an example of Christ even outside of the church, even outside of the home? That's the context here of what he's saying with the bondservant. Now, would you like to gain the ear of your boss? Would you like to have spiritual influence in your boss's life? Why? To get a raise? No. To share the gospel with them. I've said and I've heard many people say, you know, I don't care what others think of me. That's not a Christian attitude. You should care what others think of you. Now, there's times where you can't control that. I understand that. And you've got to give that to God. But on the other hand, inasmuch as it is possible for you, you should present yourself to people as someone who is godly. That you should care what they think. And what you want them to think is, oh, that's one of those Christians who does all those good things. Yeah, that's what I am. You don't want them to think, yeah, he's just like us. You should care what people think of you. So much so that you want to be the best employee possible. Not to grow the company, not to get a raise, not to be well-liked and respected in and of itself, but to gain spiritual influence in your workplace. Do you ever think of your job primarily as a place of evangelism? spend most of your time there most of your waking hours are spent in this context do you think of this as a place of evangelism why not I'll tell you uh, when I had jobs that were um, like real jobs not like what I have now which is like amazing love this job but when I had one of those um, real jobs out in the in the world um, this was not my attitude I was disgruntled I was irritable and I was disrespectful. I'd always say, I, I just want to stick it to the man. That's my job here. I'm going to stick it to the man. I wasn't grateful for my job. I didn't see it as an opportunity to interact and rub shoulders with unbelievers. I'm going to get my paycheck and I'm going to go home. That's what I'm here for. But our jobs are often the greatest opportunity to demonstrate the gospel and to share the gospel. It's a privilege. It is God's ordained 
God's ordaining in your life to be in that job, to share the gospel with them. It, it isn't so that you can make money. I'll tell you what, God is super rich, and if he wants to give you some money, he'll do it. You're there for the sake of the gospel. Now, ultimately, you're there to glorify God, and as you do that, you receive your reward in heaven as you work as unto the Lord, not out of fakeness or grumbling, but out of a genuine heart of love for God. And so what that means then is if your boss requires you to do something that is contrary to scripture, is immoral, you're not to do it. You take the consequences, consequences of that. But if he asks you to do something that violates your preferences or desires, says we're to humbly submit with a cheerful attitude now in our context of course we're free to to move jobs and that sort of thing you're, you're free to do that but as long as you're an employer employee of someone you're getting paid to do a job this is how you're to behave and ultimately the summary of it if you look at the last part of verse 10 so that you may adorn the doctrine of god our savior and so we're going to look through each one of these things that he says but all of them fall into the category of adorning that is to put on to wear the doctrine of god to the unbelieving world and so how does he do how do we do that through superficial means or entertainment no 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 how do we adorn the, the doctrine of god bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything we adorn the doctrine of God by being submissive to our bosses even if he's the worst boss most of you probably would say yeah I have the worst boss you can't all have the worst boss by the way okay somebody's got the worst boss but it's probably not you but you're to submit to him even if he doesn't respect you even if he doesn't appreciate you you just submit to him. As long as you are his employee, you just submit to his authority with a good attitude, not grumbling and complaining. Could you do his job better? Don't ask that question. That's not a helpful question to you. It'll corrupt your heart. You said, Jesus modeled perfect submission and a perfect servant attitude, even though he was the king of kings. We're to follow his example. And thereby, adorning the doctrine of God, giving opportunity for the gospel. And then he says, to submit, and then you are to be well-pleasing, well-pleasing. To make our bosses happy. To do a great job with a cheerful attitude, even if he doesn't notice it. Do you ever go to, to, go to the office in the morning, go to your workplace in the morning, show up and say, how can I make my boss happy today? That's my goal for today. I want to make my boss happy. Why? Because you're a follower of Christ. So dress yourself like one. Make your boss happy. To be well-pleasing to him. The next thing, not argumentative. 
Don't talk back to your boss. Can you offer suggestions and advice and counsel to your boss? Yes, you should. In fact, to be a good employee, you must do that. But when he says, okay, I've made my decision and this is what we're doing, and you don't agree, and you think that it's dumb, and you think that it's going to be bad for the company, but he said this is what we're doing, you say, okay, boss, how can I help you succeed at this? I want to make you succeed. I want to do what's good for you. I'm going to work as hard as I can at this terrible idea to make you succeed. And he gets all the credit, and then you get all the blame. Have you heard of a relationship like that? That's the way it should be as we adorn the doctrine of God. The next one is to be to not be pilfering. This one, um, this one hit me like a ton of bricks. This word pilfering means to take a little off the top, um, slide some in that you weren't supposed to get to get a little extra. This word is only used one other time in the New Testament. Do you know where that is? Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. If you don't know that story, I'm going to let you go read it. Tell you what, they pilfered, and it didn't turn out well for them. And I say this one hit a little close to home, because back when I worked at Scaled Composites down in Mojave, uh, they would allow us to use some of the products, some of the, some of the gloves and stuff to do our own home projects, etc. They allowed for that. Well, I took a little bit of advantage of that, and not taking just a few gloves for the project I was working on. No, I would take boxes of gloves home, boxes of materials home. That was pilfering, and that was wrong. Well, the company's budget's millions of dollars, and this is just a few dollars worth of gloves. It doesn't matter. That was still wrong. I shouldn't take what's not been given to me. They gave generously to me, and I took more than what I was allowed I was due. So we're not to be pilfering. Not to take more than what's being given to us by our boss. And we're to be showing all good faith. Showing all good faith. Faithfully serving and working. Our bosses and coworkers should be able to count on us. When we say that we're going to do a job, we better do it and do it to the best of our ability. If we say we're going to get it done by this time, we get it done by this time. If we say we're going to work on it, we're going to work on it. We're not to steal, cheat, take, waste time. We're to work hard so that they can count on us. You mean they have to count on us? That means we can't ever quit, can't ever go do something else? No, we can, we can but when we do, we do it in a way that's faithful. It's kind to them. I had this mentality of sticking it to the man, right? That my work wasn't treating me well. I'm going to just quit right out of the blue, and they're going to be left in the lurch. It's wrong. No, I'm supposed to be considerate of my coworkers, considerate of my employee. If I need to quit and I need to move on, I need to do it in a gracious way that doesn't leave them in a bind. Do what you say you're going to do. Don't cheat, steal, and lie. Be honest and hardworking in everything. That's the way a Christian is to behave in the workplace. And all these things are to give us an opportunity to share the gospel. We can't be a hypocrite and say, this is how a Christian behaves and behaves differently and expect that when we share the gospel, anybody's going to give us any attention. We are to adorn the word of God so that when we speak, the word of God is clearly understood in our lives. 
Now, they may reject the word of God. They may. You share the gospel clearly. You've lived a life that is godly. And they may reject it. And let them reject it on the basis of the truth of the gospel, not on your hypocrisy. And so you adorn the word of God. So that's young men. That's elders. Finally, workers. What is the conclusion to all of this? Old women, old men, young women, young men, etc., etc. Every age, every stage of life, every demographic has a role to play in the church, and it matters. If we don't fulfill our role in the church, if we don't adorn the doctrine of God in this church, we hurt one another, we revile the word of God, and we lose the opportunity to be a witness to the unbelieving world. Now, I give these encouragements with great confidence because I know that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church and you are the church, and so I am excited for what you guys are going to do for how you're going to interact with each other, how you're going to love each other, how you're going to then turn and love the world outside. I'm excited for that. So I encourage you again, adorn the doctrine of God in every area of your life for God's glory. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its clear message to us. And that you have not hidden from us believers what it is you have for us to do and how you want us to behave. We thank you for that. Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit that walks alongside of us and allows us to do this. Apart from you, we are unable to be self-controlled. We are left to be hypocrites who are unfit for any good work. But thank you to your Holy Spirit for your son's death on the cross that we can do good works, that we can be a witness to the unbelieving world. So, Lord, I ask that you would go with us this week as we attempt to follow you. And I thank you that you will not leave us or forsake us. It is in Jesus' name we pray.